Hello, and welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and today we're going to be taking a look at COVID pathophysiology. Code name for how does COVID do what it does, what's so interesting about it, and why are we at risk for it? This is sort of a companion podcast to the one that was just released last week with Dr. George Munoz, looking a little deeper into risks of COVID for humans related to rheumatologic disease and also just what we can do to prevent bad outcomes in general. This podcast goes very deep into the science of pathophysiology. Where are these diseases of the body from SARS to COVID taking root? How do they affect us? What's the reality behind the ability of SARS-2 to get into our tissue and then really deep dive into the immune layer of this because that's where all of the information that's necessary to understand this process can be found. We are sitting in a world where in the old days we used to look at a virus as, hey, this is a virus, you got it, and here's the outcome, and we semi-understood why the reactions that were occurring were occurring, and that is no longer the case. We are really getting closer to almost understanding every layer of these interactions within the human frame. And COVID really put us back on our heels in the beginning. But then also, because it was so aggressive, allowed us to do an incredible worldwide research effort to figure out where and how our immune systems are becoming dysregulated, how we're getting overinflamed, and frankly, how people are dying. In my lifetime, I've never seen anything like this as to how well the researchers at the bench of the labs were capable of rapidly looking through the tissues and doing scientific analyses to figure out what's going wrong and then disseminate that information real time, as you guys have witnessed over the past two years by the newsletter, kicking out data set after data set after data set, of which none of I did. This is me taking people's information and feed forwarding it to you. So this piece today is sort of a coalescence of two years of understanding around COVID. And so just like with Dr. Munoz, we sort of talked about how can we produce better self-care instructions, and then how can people then take those instructions and utilize them for better self-care, which then leads to less death. And to me, that's the reason I'm going to audio record this pathophysiology piece because it is very dense. And for for parts, it's going to go over your head if you are not medically trained. But that's actually okay because when you get to the meat of it, you're going to really have an understanding of where you can make change for yourself, your family, your friends, cousins, whoever it is, by helping educate folks around what are the antecedent risk factors, again, of upstream inflammatory diseases? How do we then mitigate those diseases and or treat disease that's active within us so that we don't have a bad outcome to SARS-CoV-2 or the next infection-based pandemic? So take that for what it's worth, but this is, this is a deep dive, and it's going to be one of the deepest dives I ever do in any topic, but it's necessary to understand COVID. So here goes. The pathophysiology or the mechanisms behind SARS-2 COVID in humans. This is for 2022. SARS-CoV-2, 
The virus that causes COVID-19 is now known to be an infectious disease with features of a human disease that span the spectrum from asymptomatic to profoundly dysregulated immune system responses, which can lead to both aggressive inflammation and autoimmunity in the moderately to severely affected persons. It is now very clear that the vast majority of these significantly affected individuals have a high burden of antecedent systemic inflammation in the form of chronic diseases of aging and or poor lifestyle choices that predispose the immune system to poor pathogen killing and dysregulate inflammation, often with autoreactive features. The poor early innate immune-based pathogen killing allows for increased viral loads, leading to time-based systemic viral immune responses and reactions that we see of as hyperinflammation and cellular damage at the macro level. The second category of poor COVID-related outcomes comes from the genetic single nucleotide mutations of immune viral pathogen killing and recognition. And by single nucleotide mutations, I mean an alteration of the genetic code in certain genes that predispose to reduced ability of the human to mount a viral response and effectively kill the pathogen. Unfortunately, these two realities can coexist, leading to massive disease burdens. And in this piece, we will explore the current scientific evidence behind this disease and how it so tragically tore through the United States with such a high death burden compared to other like nations globally. And by like nations, I mean those that are of higher economic status and means with good quality healthcare systems. The origins of this virus are unknown. There is a possible theory that it was naturally derived from an animal, and there is some data that it may have come from the Wuhan animal seafood sort of live animal market that they had there in Wuhan, China. Or is it the lab leak theory from a a bio-level 4 research lab that was in that same region? And there was significant data that that might be true, but looks unprovable at this time. And frankly, I think both are unprovable at this time. But they're both hotly debated in the scientific community. Part of my thought process, I think I see more fire behind the lab leak side, but that is what it is and little more. Just thoughts, no ideas. What do we know, or better yet, what do we think we know? This reminds me of the Donald Rumsfeld comment on the known knowns and the known unknowns and so on. He was quoted as saying, reports that say that something hasn't happened are always interesting to me because, as we know, there are known knowns. There are the things we know we know. We also know there are the known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we do not know. I digress. We don't know. But we're going to go into what we really do know today. In normal times, a human will balance the need for inflammation as a right of pathogen killing against self-preservation from excessive damage from said inflammation. When all goes according to plan, the immune system revs up robustly at first sign of a novel viral pathogen causing immediate action of viral killing through the innate immune system primarily driven by local innate immune cells. Inflammation-based mechanisms like inflammasomes, as well as other systems like complement and acute phase proteins. Then once the pathogen is adequately controlled, the immune system returns to baseline activity and cleans up all inflammatory debris through the lymphatic system and rebuilds any damaged cellular systems. It is a beautiful and dynamic system full of flux and resolution leading to health long term. Enter SARS-2. 
a 120 nanometer RNA virus that enters the body primarily as an aerosol droplet via the oral and nasal passages and minimally by the ocular or fecal route. It primarily travels to the lungs and attaches to the ciliated epithelial cells as well as to the type 2 pneumocyte via an antigen-converting enzyme 2 receptor, known as ACE2R. The ACE2R then decreases in number as you go farther into the smaller lung tubes toward the alveoli and air sacs. This virus uses our protease enzymes to cleave a portion of its spike protein off, allowing it to fuse with the attacked cell surface, thereby injecting its RNA sequence into our cells for replication and further spread throughout the body via the bloodstream, or what is called viremia. Interestingly, it takes approximately 10 minutes for SARS-2 to attach to the ACE2 receptor and fuse with the mammalian cell, and about 10 hours to reproduce inside, causing the release of about 100 more virions per infected cell, a process which is exponentially repeated with neighboring susceptible cells until the immune system catches up. If the type 2 pneumocyte cells are damaged within the alveoli, distal air sacs, then the normally produ produced angiotensin-converting enzyme 2, or ACE2, that is normally lung cell protective and anti-inflammatory, becomes less available for protection of the lung tissue, as the receptors are bound and the cells die. Thus, damaged epithelial cells proximally cause local inflammation, and the damaged distal type 2 pneumocytes lose function, causing some lung collapse. This is the beginning process of what we normally call ARDS, or Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome, which was seen with SARS-1 and MERS, the previous two versions of this virus. We presumed that this was occurring again with SARS-2. When enough of these small air sacs collapse, air exchange becomes impossible, and patients respond by increasing the rate of breathing and using accessory muscles to draw deeper and deeper breaths until this is not enough to maintain oxygen and clear CO2 levels. Essentially, your lungs collapse to the point that effective oxygen exchange is lost and life is not sustainable without mechanical ventilation. If the inflammation and organ damage worsens, then ventilation may not be enough and death ensues. However, this is not what we are really seeing in the intensive care units nationwide and at autopsy analysis post-mortem. Part of the difference was originally shown by the group led by Michael Garvin at the Oak Ridge Laboratories in Tennessee as they discovered the new bradykinin theory. There's a system called the Renin Angiotensin System, which is the vasopressor or blood pressure controller that is involved in raising and lowering blood pressures throughout the human body. ACE2 converts angiotensin 2 to angiotensin 1. Thus, if ACE2 activity is reduced, angiotensin 2 levels rise, and they in turn signal through the AT1 receptor these actions, vasoconstriction, interstitial fibrosis, macrophage activation, and the production of inflammatory cytokines, which induce more endothelial dysfunction and increase in pulmonary permeability, leading to pulmonary edema, or fluid in the lungs. Reduced expression of ACE2 from damaged type 2 pneumocytes reduces the bradykinin breakdown, a chemical that naturally induces blood vessel dilation and permeability leading to local leakage of fluid into tissue spaces during a healing process that requires clotting or inflammation. Under normal conditions, this process allows immune and inflammatory mediators of healing 
to be mobilized to areas of infection or injury where the dilation and leakage are all self-limited and result in inflammatory response, resolution, and complete recovery. However, in this case, the excess bradykinin is counterproductive and leads to more edema, inflammation, and fibrosis. More inflammatory cytokines follow this event, leading to a circular event with even more inflammatory cytokines infiltrating the tissue and compounding the fluid-based inflammatory response that essentially drowns a sick patient. Thus, what we previously thought was an alveolar collapse is now really a hyaluronic-based jelly like inflammatory fluid infiltration, which reduces our ability to exchange oxygen, makes us feel like we're drowning. Autopsy results showed these changes, confirming the different airway pathophysiology between SARS-2 and the original SARS-1. So let me recap this a little bit before we go on. So this tricky little creature, SARS-2, it's a virus, has the ability to hijack our proteins to gain access to receptors, fuse with our cells, impregnate them with their RNA, excuse me, replicate massively, causing viremia, and then alter the vascular permeability and ultimately dump a boatload of inflammatory cells into the system to really damage healthy tissues. This is the crux of the cytokine, ACE2, bradykinin, storm theory. But there are still missing pieces. Somewhere along the way, in a subset of very sick patients, the inflammatory cytokine reaction is triggering a hypercoagulable or clotting state that we see as deep venous clots, strokes, or organ damage. It is thought that the clotting cascade begins to cause trouble in the lung tissue before becoming systemic and causing massive damage. The markers of disease are elevated D-dimers and fibrinogen. The current understanding of the pathophysiology behind the coagulopathy or clotting centers in COVID-19 appears to be related to the bidirectional crosstalk between inflammation and thrombosis or clotting. COVID-19 leads to a severe inflammatory response that originates in the lung epithelial cells and pneumocytes. The subsequent release of inflammatory cytokines leads to activation of epithelial cells and monocytes to macrophages. Direct infection of the endothelial cells leads to endothelial activation and dysfunction, expression of tissue factor and platelet activation and increased levels of von Willebrand factor and factor eight, all of which contribute to thrombin generation, and fibrin clot formation. Thrombin, in turn, causes inflammation through its effects on platelets, which promote neutrophil extracellular trap formation in neutrophils. It also activates endothelium through the protease-activated receptor, which leads to a release of complement component C5A that further activates monocytes. The other big known problem is this in this infection is that SARS-2 virus has the ability to infect or enter circulating or stationary immune cells causing a rapid decline in white blood cell function and number. This leads to less viral surveillance and killing ability, leaving the virus free to replicate at will. This is another major reason for the corresponding extraordinary release of proteins called cytokines that inflame all local tissues worsening the disease in multiple organs. The massive volume of circulating viral particles then travel far and wide attacking and targeting organs that express ACE2 receptors such as the lungs, heart, kidneys, and GI tract. The average time to illness is seven days after exposure. This essentially is the time that it takes for the virus to go through these phases of replication and spread. 
During the initial stages of the illness, the majority of individuals have normal immune responses with robust white blood cell mobilization and viral killing leading to the mild or asymptomatic disease. However, we now know that individuals that develop moderate to severe disease have reduced white blood cell responses and reduced T and B cell activity, whether this is genetic or lifestyle related or both is patient dependent. We also know now from studies to date that inherent genetic defects in immune pattern recognition receptors puts even healthy individuals at risk because of the loss of viral surveillance and killing. This is albeit relatively rare. Now let me stop here and put a caveat in. The seven-day time frame and some of these other pathophysiologic mechanisms are predominantly related to the earlier strains of alpha, beta, and delta. It appears that Omicron, BA.1 and BA.2, are infecting much more quickly in the three-day range, and their disease pathophysiology is less deadly than the delta variety because they are infecting the upper part of the lung tissue and not the lower part of the lung terminal air sacs and lower epithelium. So that be what it said, this pathophysiologic mechanisms all are in play. There's just some mild nuances now coming out with Omicron that are less deadly. But we really wanted to look at this virus from the more deadly perspective. So that's why I'm giving you the deeper dive to what Delta was doing mostly and what we are seeing in some patients with Omicron that have severe risk factors. Okay, let us look at this event from the perspective of the innate immune system. The innate immune system is the first line of defense against any invading pathogen. The innate immune system is comprised of pattern recognition receptors that detect fragments of viruses, bacteria, parasites, leading to signaling cascade that recruits white blood cells or lymphocytes for a killing party. The PRRs, or pattern recognition receptors, are divided into PAMP and DAMP types. PAMP stands for pathogen-associated molecular patterns, are specifically set up to recognize protein fragments of a pathogen structure. DAMPs, or damage-associated molecular patterns, recognize damaged human cell parts as a danger signal to self. This DAMP response signal is a high-level warning that your cells are being attacked, and this elicits a major response from the immune system. Tolic receptors, or TLRs, are a type of pattern recognition receptor that bind to their target pathogen when recognized, which in turn leads to the production of interferons cytokines, and chemokines, which are signaling molecules to enhance local immune killing via white blood cells. In the case of SARS-2, the toll-like receptor recognizes the virus and sends out interferons to recruit killer white blood cells to the area, block viral replication, and activate, den, den, excuse me, activate the dendritic cells, which are a specific type of macrophage that is part of the adaptive immune system, which we know of as circulating antibodies that will develop over time from these dendritic cells. We'll get to that in a minute. When these infected cells die and release more virus in high number, they also release cellular debris, and these viral particles are recognized by DAMPs and PAMPs, respectively, inducing a robust local immune response that has a re recurrent autocrine effect i.e. a loop effect, comes back and goes in round and around, increasing inflammation. Type 1 and type 3 interferons, by the name interferon, it's interfering with something, and what it's interfering with is the ability of the virus to replicate. But type 1 and type 3 interferons activate and upregulate the function of the innate immune system's tissue-resident cells, including dendritic cells, alveolar and interstitial tissue-resident macrophages, and natural killer cells, otherwise known as NK cells. For example, monocytes macrophages, uh, 
phagocytize or eat the infected cells and induce type 1 interferon responses in pro-inflammatory molecules. NK cells, natural killer cells, recognize peptides expressed on the surface of the infected cells and destroy them via direct cytotoxicity through perforins and granzyme B release. These are proteins and different chemicals that actually, once released, will put a hole in the cell, killing it. All immune cells release cytokines and chemokines, such as, among others, tumor necrosis factor alpha, interleukin-1 beta, interleukin-6, interleukin-8, that amplify and propagate the immune response by recruiting more cells in the following time order. Neutrophils are recruited first, within 24 hours post-infection, peaking by day three. They are followed by dendritic cells and monocytes. T and B cells appear later around day five, which begins the adaptive phase of immunity, and it takes roughly six to 10 days to build a functional adaptive antibody response through priming. This delay for education is critical for developing a clone of specific T and B cell repertoire targeted directly to the pathogen's proteins. Think about how elegant our immune systems are. A tiny little creature, 120 nanometers in size, gets into our body, and we have these amazing recognition receptors called PRRs that are sitting there that have a little hand up that are looking for a fragment of this virus that fits conformationally like a square peg in a square hole. When it does that, it jiggers this response that says, hey, spit out some chemicals that recruits other cells to the area because we have somebody here who's causing trouble that we need to kill. And oh, by the way, if your cell gets infected and busts open, releasing virions, not only does it take on the pattern recognition of the virus, but it also has pattern recognition of cellular structures. So, for example, it takes ATP that gets released. It takes nuclear proteins that get, gets released. And it says, hey, this can't be good. If our cell structures are being released, we need to send over guys quickly. So that's a major alarm signal. And ATP tends to be one of the bigger ones. That's our energy production of adenosine triphosphate. That's our energy cell um, produce a mechanism of how we use energy and transport it around the body. So to me, this is just beautiful a system that is set up at the microscopic level to recognize these tiny, tiny, tiny little creatures and mount an immediate response. And then we're going to get into how it mounts a secondary response, which is how to learn memory over time to help us in the future deal with this virus or other viruses that we see again and again and again. SARS-2 in certain individuals has the ability to delay the interferon response, which appears to be worse with advancing age. The mechanisms utilized by the coronaviruses to evade the initial immune recognition and response via interferons can be divided into three categories. Avoidance of the recognition by the pattern recognition receptors, suppression of the generation of the type 1 through 3 interferons, and reduction and or interference of interferon signaling. Other individuals, mostly men, have autoantibodies in the autoimmune world against interferons, making the viral response weak and allowing for a permissive viral environment. Furthermore, the reduced interferon signaling reduces the interferon-stimulated genes, otherwise known as ISGs, which directly messes with the antigen-presenting cells like macrophages, ability to recognize, engulf, and kill the virus. It also reduces the activity of the major histocompatibility complex 1 and 2's ability to adequately present viral proteins for adaptive 
recognition leading to worsened antibody responses. Okay, pause. So we now see a picture where the clever little virus has developed methods for reducing our ability to recognize it, kill it, and then develop memory against it for the future. In the long term, these evasion strategies are not functional for a healthy person as they will eventually overwhelm the virus and revert to normalcy. The kicker is the already inflamed individual with autoantibodies against self-derived innate immune mechanisms like the interferons. They are less likely to catch up to the virus and survive as the initial immune response is so weak that the viral particle number gets so large that the immune system goes into micro-wars all over the body leading to an exhaustless state rapidly. This has been shown by the lower number of white blood cells and the weak function of those that are present seen in very sick individuals. Thus, it is imperative that we have a very robust innate initial immune response right out of the gate like we see in infants and young children who respond very well to this virus and have very low risk outcomes. As the process progresses, more cellular contents are spilled into the local tissue, releasing far more damage-associated molecular patterns, self-tissue proteins, which in turn signals the formation of neutrophil extracellular traps, always known as NETs, and inflammasomes. The NETs form when a group of actively recruited neutrophils, early attendees to the process, form a NET-like trap. Neutrophils are usually the first line of defense in the fight against pathogens. They migrate around the body, these, these white blood cell types, and come over, and during an infection, they will cause a protective duty by performing a phagocytosis or swallowing, eating the virus or pathogen, then degranulating of the antibacterial proteins that release from the neutrophil. Also, they will generate reactive oxygen species like hydrogen peroxide or superoxides, and uh, the recruitment and activation of other immunocompetent cells. So neutrophils are very, very important. They also are exceedingly, exceedingly powerful because they have the ability to generate these extracellular neutrophil traps. The structure of a neutrophil extracellular trap is fascinating as it's made up of a thin, smooth strand of DNA. Yep, your DNA, believe it or not, that tiny little Watson and Crick DNA that we always see in pictures traps the SARS-2 virus within a net of DNA from multiple neutrophils in a polygonal pattern and they prevent the spread of the virus. It's absolutely amazing. It also allows for the concentration of antimicrobial factors in the neutrophils at the site of the infection to grow. This is a very, very powerful way to control an infection early on. However, it becomes problematical when it persists for a long time based on the viral load and the autocrine feedback loop of damps from the cellular damage. This persistence of NETS inflammation causes significant systemic damage leading to increased SARS-2 morbidity and mortality. So, Again, you're seeing a pattern here over and over again where if we don't catch the virus early through interferons and different cells coming to the play, the game, quickly, killing the virus, getting it under control, we end up with all these mechanisms that are so beautiful for us getting overexpressed because there's too much virus, there's too much battle, too much war, and then they then become actually a net negative against healing and health. So in the same line of thinking, our innate immune systems have a fire-based mechanism called pyrins, P-Y-R-I-N-S. Chief among them is the inflammasome. By its name, we see that it's a robust source of inflammation at the local tissue site where a pattern recognition receptor called an NLRP3 gets activated by the presence of the virus. 
ATP or adenosine triphosphate, cellular debris, or other recognized, recognized patterns. The inflammasome then assembles and releases cell wall pore-forming materials, which are used to insert gasderm in gasdermin, IL-1-beta, and IL-18 into the cell. The downstream effect is cellular apoptosis, which means cellular death, as well as the formation of neutrophil extracellular traps and the activation of the clotting mechanism of complement, leading to thrombosis and cardiovascular compromise, which is the hallmark of COVID disease and is vastly different from the other SARS-1 and MERS infections of the past. So we sit here, again, looking at another very useful mechanism, the inflammasome, which is a fire-based mechanism to kill pathogens, but in overload, it actually leads to clotting, thrombosis, and, and damage to the heart. Okay, so let us assume that the innate immune process goes according to plan and is not overactivated. What happens next? Well, this is where the adaptive immune system comes in. It gets activated and begins the process of developing antibodies as well as memory cells for future recognition. So if we see this virus again, it knows what to do. For this process to occur correctly, a certain cell type is critical, the CD4 positive T cell. The T cell is responsible for ushering viral and other information back and forth between the antigen presenting cells like monocytes and macrophages of the immune system and the B cells of the adaptive immune system that eventually allow for long-lived plasma and memory B cells to form, get educated, and persist for years. This is the process by which we are able to recognize the same virus again in the future with little to no issue the second time around. The memory B and T cells are then prepped to pump out immune-fighting antibodies targeted to the virus in question. The resolution of the circulating antibodies after a few months, as with SARS-2, is due to the fact that in the absence of active disease, the immune system does not want to carry large loads of antibodies against millions of pathogens and proteins in the world. This is energetically taxing, and it would cause problems with excess proteins in the blood leading to, possi leading to possible coagulation. T cells, these critical and exceedingly important cells that were written about many times as the savior of humans when antibodies are waning post-vaccine or post-booster or post-natural infection, which turned out to be completely correct, are divided into two types, CD4 and CD8. CD4 are known as a helper type. CD8 are known as a cytotoxic type. The CD4 positive cells receive viral information from the antigen presenting cell, educating it on the specific type of pathogen. That information is then swapped with a B cell, leading to its activation as a plasma cell and robust antibody production or memory B cell specific to SARS-2. So we have the macrophages as from the innate immune system, dendritic cells, neutrophils, whoever they are, grabbing pieces of tissue from the virus, presenting it to the T cell. The T cell, known as a CD4 positive T cell, takes that information and presents it to the B cell. The B cell though learns the information and says, okay, I know what this virus structure looks like and starts to make antibodies specifically against that virus structure. Those antibodies then circulate on the body and mop up the virus when it sees it. That antibody process wanes though and wanes usually within three to six months after exposure to the vaccine and a little bit longer with natural infection. Therefore, when you re-see the virus a second time around, you may have no antibodies circulating of high volume 
Therefore, the virus can start to get into you, but the antibodies pump out very quickly, along with your innate immune system's function. So you rapidly get rid of this virus a second time, which is why the vaccines work so well, because you have this T cell memory. Okay, the CD8 positive T cell, the other one, otherwise known as a cytotoxic T cell, takes the same information, but targets the SARS-2 infected cells directly for destruction. So again, somewhere in the innate immune system, a macrophage sees the virus, grabs a piece of it, puts it on its cell surface, exchanges that information with the CD8 positive T cell. Now that CD8 positive T cell specific receptors on its surface that now can see the virus. When it sees the virus, it grabs it, grabs the cell that is infected with the virus and kills it. These T cells then release interferons and cytokines, like we talked about earlier, to enhance local pathogen killing by recruiting neutrophils and other monocytes to the area where that cell just was. Simultaneously, the amazing key to our long-lived immunity occurs in local lymph nodes. This part's amazing. The initially programmed B cells then go to these local lymph nodes for further education in what's called the germinal center of the local node, or systemic nodes that are nearby, whereby they progress through layers of learning in this germinal center of the lymph node, like rings of a tree heading towards the center. A slight shift in protein structure in either direction mimics nature's viral mutagenesis in lockstep unless the virus is a wholesale large sequence amino acid protein change, as was seen with the Omicron variant. So think about that. Your local lymph node now has a T cell in it that is progressing through like rings of a tree. And each progression, it changes its receptor structure a little bit in order to make a different antibody to different types of alterations that the virus might make. So it's anticipating in advance what the virus naturally does that we're seeing with Omicron or Delta or any of the SARS-2 variants. I, th I find this part amazing. So we have these incredible systems in place to, to pre-predict what the virus might do in nature. Okay, so what this does in effect is this activity further expands the ability of the antibodies to recognize viral particles that have been slightly mutated, which occurs with almost all viral diseases. The end result of this intricate process is the production of a wide array of plasma cells or memory cells, otherwise known as memory B cells, that are capable of recognizing a pathogen and its mutant cousins, rapidly leading to rapid killing via antibody production. The first antibodies produced are of the IgA class during the first week of infection, followed by IgM over week two, and finally IgG over week three. In the case of SARS-2, the antibodies are primarily directed against the spike protein's receptor binding site and the nucleocapsid. The antibody against the spike protein prevents the virus from attaching to the ACE2 receptor and replicating. In babies and infants, the antibody response is primarily only against the spike protein as the infection is cleared very, very rapidly in this age group. This is the normal adaptive immune response. But what happens to the abnormal state? In an aggressive disease state, we need to further subdivide the CD4 positive T cells as the main player in the process as they migrate to the sites of the infection to begin the education mobilization process. The CD4 positive T cells are divided into many types. 
But for the purpose of this paper, we will stick to the T regulator cell, the Th1 cell, or T helper 1 cell, Th2 cell, and Th17 cell. The T regulator cells involve primarily in the immune dampening and tolerance to pathogen, non-pathogenic proteins. Th1 is involved in intracellular pathogen killing of organisms like herpes viruses and SARS-2. Th2 is involved in macrobe killing, like larger organisms of the parasite family. Th17 is involved in the extracellular pathogens like bacteria. The balance of these cells can then dictate the effective response to a pathogen. The dysfunctional side of each T-cell polarity response is as follows. Th1 excess leads to uncontrolled inflammation. Th2 excess leads to allergies and atopic diseases like asthma. Th17 excess leads to autoimmunity. And finally, Treg cell dysfunction leads to immune tolerance breakdown. In COVID disease, these innate and adaptive processes are rendered dysfunctional by the precursor lifestyle inflammatory abnormalities. Host genetic single nucleotide polymorphisms of pattern recognition receptors and interferons, and viral induced lymphocyte and cytokine changes. Chronic hyperglycemia, gut microbe dysbiosis, hypoxia, toxic exposures, and much more lead to alterations in immune activity that are counter to effective pathogen killing in humans. When investigators have looked at mild, moderate, and severe COVID-19 cases, they noted change occurring between mild and moderate disease. They found unusual cell types, including exhausted CD4-positive T-cells, cytotoxic CD4-positive T-cells, and proliferative exhaustive CD8-positive T-cells. The presence of exhausted T-cells is a marker of poor outcome and portends immune dysregulation in general. To me, this is a marker of baseline overactivity of immune surveillance and killing, as Patrice Connie calls low-level endotoxemia from microbial intestinal dysbiosis. These same exhausted cells initially, pre-exhaustion, secrete interferons and cytokines like IL-2 and tumor necrosis factor for further increasing local pathogen destruction and polarizing the T-helper cells towards a TCD4-positive helper type 2 pattern which is reserved normally for attacks on parasites and is involved with histamine release as a hallmark of poor COVID outcome. The polarity switch that occurs post and pre-infection are believed to be the main drivers of adaptive immune dysregulation that we see playing out clinically. There's also evidence that increased IL-17 production by TH17 cells in COVID-19 patients has broad inflammatory effects through the upregulation of pro-inflammatory cytokines like GCSF, granulocyte colony stimulating factor, interleukin-1-beta, interleukin-6, tumor necrosis factor alpha, as well as chemokines, MIP-2A, IL-8, IP-10, MIP-3A, matrix metalloproteinases, all of which lead to uncontrolled immune cell recruitment and signaling, which we see as profound systemic inflammation, organ damage, and finally death by coagulation, vascular leakage, and pulmonary failure. Thus, TH17 polarity change is also associated with COVID-19 autoimmunity. We see that humans immunologically polarized to TH2 and TH17 pre-infection are likely to have a worse outcome overall due to poor viral surveillance and killing capacity, coupled to an overindulgent immune reactivity after the virus has had a period of time to robustly replicate and seed the whole human corpus. The resultant inflammatory response overwhelms the entire immune system, leading to exhaustion and tissue damage throughout the organ systems, ultimately leading to severe illness and death. 
the last piece of the last piece of pathophysiology resides in precursor risk factors for poor pathogen clearance and worsened inflammatory responses. Epidemiologically, it is very clear that 95 plus percent of the uh, more or more of the COVID-related deaths were in groups that had either advanced age and or comorbid disease related to poor lifestyle choices, such as the standard American diet, sloth, toxin exposure, eating excessive calories in general, and inadequate sleep, mental stress, and other issues that all drive dysfunctional shifts in T helper cell activity, autoantibody production, and systemic inflammation. These changes are present in the host prior to the infection with a virus, setting the stage for poor viral surveillance, killing capacity, and later hyperinflammation. To me, this is the key piece of this entire narrative. What can we control in order to surveil, recognize, and then kill the SARS-2 virus before it has the opportunity to cause a bradykine and cytokine storm? We can control our lifestyle choices that enhance immune function and prevent exposure. It is that simple. The rest is relatively out of our control. I was pretty amazed to think during this entire pandemic that we thought we had the ability to lock down, mask up, socially avoid completely over the foreseeable future in order to avoid anyone getting sick from this virus. Clearly turned out to be wrong. And we unfortunately suffered a lot of other problems because of this with children not going to school, wearing masks forever. We made a lot of bad decisions that I know you know I've written about a lot and we need to hopefully avoid this for the future. That being said, when I discussed some of this stuff with some of my ICU colleagues and friends in adult medicine about, you know, talking about lifestyle modification as a way to prevent disease in the future, especially viral disease now, uh, there's little interest. And I don't know if that's related to the amount of time adult medicine doctors have or what that reality is, but, you know, patients push back. I mean, there's so many layers to this I'm unsure of, and I don't blame my colleagues so much so as... I am just aggressive myself personally at pushing this narrative because I think it's so important. You know, medicine is quite dysfunctional and we need to change how we do disease management towards disease prevention. We need to spend more time thinking about why are we dying, not throwing medicine at problems that people continually do to themselves over and over again. Take, for example, alcohol. You drink too much alcohol over and over again, you're going to mess up your liver. So we need to spend more time talking about how not to take too much alcohol into your system. So for me, the message of modern medicine is that we could have had a lot less than, as of the writing of this piece, 980,000 deaths in Americans if we had spent time trying to prevent the upstream inflammatory risks of disease. We need to understand the antecedent pathophysiology first, which is one of the reasons I wrote this piece. Because if we really truly understand how the innate immune system, the adaptive immune system becoming dysfunctional, rendered so by our choices, maybe we can make better choices. Understanding the pathogenesis of this virus has taken some time, but is the key to making educated choices to support immune responses now and for the future. The bottom line is twofold with regard to the prevention of SARS-2. First, support immune surveillance by making sure the immune system is fine-tuned to recognize and destroy the virus early on so that it is minimal opportunity to replicate and hijack our immune system. 
Secondly, support survival if you get ill, and the virus has the ability to replicate. This means that we want adequate and functional responses from natural killer cells and T helper type 1 cells. Then you need and want adequate and functional responses from natural killer cells and type Th1 cells. Then you need a low starting inflammation point so that your immune system, when it begins to get inflamed, doesn't get overinflamed, but attacks the virus effectively, but you're not pushed into a place of inflammation and death. Now, we know that obesity, cardiovascular disease, and type 2 diabetes are major risk factors for a negative COVID outcome. We also know that these diseases are associated with significant flares in any immune inflammasome activity. Therefore, one leap of faith seems to be that if we reduce triggers of baseline inflammasome activity, then we could mitigate some of the downstream risk if we contract SARS-2. For example, as you learned with Dr. Rick Johnson, reducing fructose and fructose-based corn syrup consumption would reduce the metabolite uric acid, which is a known trigger of inflammasome formation activity system-wide. This occurs notoriously in the mitochondria of the liver, muscles, and kidneys, inducing adipose deposition, insulin resistance, high blood pressure, and kidney damage of the nephrons. Inflammasomes also worsen cardiac coronary artery damage, which is seen with many COVID deaths. Panoptosis is a term used to describe cell death globally in the human body via the stimulation and activation of pyroptosis, apoptosis, and necroptosis. These are in cells, leading to inflammatory death. This appears to happen in a subset of severe COVID-19 patients who had severe obesity and inflammation. So again, if obesity is increasing the risk of panoptosis, we need to attack the upstream risks of obesity. For me, the greatest risk for all-cause human mortality appears to be the overconsumption of refined foods that are loaded with poor-quality fatty acids and huge glucose loads that drive insulin resistance via diacylglycerol inhibition of the transcription of the muscles, GLUT4 transporter, glucose transporter 4 receptor to the surface that allows glucose to get into the cell of the muscle. If it's not being translocated, glucose is getting stuck in the bloodstream and this is a problem. This lack of, trans lack of transcription of the GLUT4 transporter, as well as fat deposition of the secondary causes a secondary hyperglycemia and insulinemia that is not good for inflammation. Large volumes of fructose ingestion in the same refined foods like apple juice or soda drive fat deposition via the metabolite uric acid through historically beneficial survival pathways in the mitochondria and the liver that are no longer survival benefits because we're overconsuming for prolonged periods of time. These processes lead to obesity, which is notorious for having immunologically activated fat cells that slant toward dysfunctional inflammatory macrophages, T-cells, that are activated and notorious for presenting antigen to the immune system for reaction leading to, unfortunately, autoimmunity, which you're seeing a lot more after COVID disease. These same fat cells also drive inflammasome responses and suppress natural killer cell activity, as is well known in diabetics which are the poster children or poster adults or poster humans for hyperglycemia in general. There are many other nutrition-based issues to discuss, but for the sake of this piece, I, I'm only going to add a few more because it, it would be hours and hours long if I went through all the nutritional pieces. But let me add just this. Grain-fed 
and corn-fed animal meats are loaded with pro-inflammatory omega-6 fats that are potentially driving excessive arachidonic acid production cytokine responses in humans. So avoid, to me, simple answer would be avoid animals that aren't fed their natural food source. These and many other nutrition-based events conspire to reduce viral surveillance and killing while paradoxically increasing inflammation through inflammasome formation and cytokine release. This is the perfect storm for a bad outcome. This is only a small representation of the many changes that lifestyle modification could have on immune function and COVID risk, as discussed over the past two years. I truly think that this virus is a wake-up call for all of us to eat whole foods that are minimally processed, mostly vegetables, fruits, legumes, seeds, and nuts supplemented with wild-caught, naturally-raised meats, fish, and eggs. We need to sleep more, stress less, exercise, and move often, laugh, live, and prepare for the future. That is a dramatic recipe for inflammation reduction, homeostatic immune response, and ultimately protection. You know, if you want to look even deeper for what to do, you should read an excellent paper by Dr. Sam Yannick, Y-A-N-U-C-K, in the journal Integrative Medicine. He and his colleagues, you know, looked at all of this stuff at length and really gave a, a primer on what we can do to help reduce these risks and eliminate factors that drive non-purposeful inflammation and related dysregulatory impacts on immune function. The patient's inflammatory baseline status is influenced by pre-existing inflammatory conditions, and it is critical that we attack this piece of human living. The pre-existing inflammation is the driver. That is the key. The virus we cannot change. It exists. It comes at us. The next virus will too, but we have to go after the pre-existing issues to help us be ready to handle whatever comes next. For me, an opportunity presents itself in the non-infected patient and potentially in the infected patient early in the course of disease to reduce non-purposeful contributors to inflammation. We need to mitigate the risk of the patient entering the escalating inflammation phase should they become infected. So the potential areas of interest here would be fewfold. First, sleep. There are a few newsletters written on this topic, specifically around Matthew Walker's work. Sleep is critical. It is heavily involved in immune function. It is anti-inflammatory when done correctly, eight hours, high quality sleep, and it also promotes Th1 responses, which is viral killing. Disordered sleep is characterized by reduced sleep efficiency, less slow wave sleep, and more REM sleep. Disordered sleep yields increased inflammation and increases the Th2 response against parasites, but doesn't help us because it does it at the expense of the Th1 response, which is the viral killing side. Sound sleep hygiene practices are fundamental for promoting healthy sleep, and I encourage everyone to work on their sleep. Make sure you're getting to sleep at the same time every night, getting up at the same time. Use melatonin if you need to. Make sure you have a nice quiet room, dark shades if necessary, room temperature lower, 65, you sleep better than higher temperatures. You know, all of these things you can read more about in the newsletter. Search on the newsletter bar at the health and wellness tab in SalisburyPediatricAssociates.com. There is a tab that says uh, search under the newsletter page and you can put in sleep and they'll pop up. But in addition, substance such as melatonin can be added, you know, into the system. But it turns out that melatonin is also useful because it inhibits the inflammasome. 
which reduces airway inflammation. So there are benefits here across the board, but sleep is critical. Stress, number two in this list. Stress chemistry is inherently inflammatory. We know this. Acute stress, no big deal. Chronic, unremitting stress that a lot of Americans are under, whether it's mental or physical, are not good for the body. They are hyperinflammatory. Many patients or people will be enduring significant chronic stress by the time they become infected. COVID has been a massive stress on the kids, on everybody. So we need to start working hard on mitigating stress. And the ways to do that are multifold. There are adaptogens that can be used as herbs like ashwagandha or ginseng. There are meditations that you can do, prayer, uh, village mentality, live together, really work together. And, and in effect, you know, this, this really helps because cortisol goes through the roof during stress and that becomes immune suppressive. So we want to reduce our cortisol. And how do you do that? Meditation, sleep, relaxation, exercise, prayer, right? And, and, and we know that this has an effect because the research has shown us that lung inflammation being driven by inflammasome activation and interleukins, you know, the, these can be autocrine in their loop, with, which means you get more and more and more of this stuff pumping out. But this stuff can be reduced through stress reduction. You know, and, and so for me, that's critical. There are non-steroidal treatments that are targeting inflammasome activation, specifically IL-1R drug called anacarana that has been shown to block, you know, uh, lipopolysaccharide being released from the, the, the gut lining that gets into the systems causing neutrophil influx in, in healthy subjects, hurting them. So, you know, we want to go after some of this stuff naturally. And the way to do that is stress chemistry, stress reduction. So, you know, for me, it doesn't matter what type of stress reduction mechanism you're using, but you should be doing it on a daily basis. You know, mindfulness techniques, uh, relaxing music, art therapy, biofeedback, lots of hugs, whatever it is. Focus on it, work on it. Give yourself a chance, your family, everybody to heal. Number three is big. Glycemic control. We've talked about this ad nauseum over the past many years, but we have to address it now in another way because of the work with Dr. Rick Johnson and uh, Jerry Schulman. We have to address glycemic control as a critical part of controlling baseline inflammation. You know, we know insulin resistance is a problem. We know impaired glucose tolerance is driving inflammation and maybe the most important contributing factor to why diabetics have the highest risk of COVID-19 negativity. Most of the work of achieving optimal glycemic control involves subtracting foods from the diet that contribute to the increased postprandial glycemic response, right? So we want to avoid sweet beverages, sugar-based beverages, fructose-based beverages. And then we want to avoid the foods that are loaded with fructose and, and table sugar and, and just additives, right? So the cakes, the cookies, the crackers, the chips, the refined carbohydrates and ad nauseum. Um, but the, the drinks are the big one for me limit the, the structure of children and adults being exposed to soda, Kool-Aid, Gatorade, sweet tea, you know, all this juice stuff, terrible, stop it. So for me, this could help us avoid the polypharmacy that's involved with insulin resistance and insulin problems that lead to all this inflammation. So for me, I think, you know, learning about glycemic index and glycemic load would be of value. And there's links in the website to that. Because if you understand what foods are dangerous to you, you know, that'll help you reduce that burden. You know, food combining is useful. So if you eat bread, make sure you have some other protein and, and fat attached to it so that it, it, it doesn't spike your sugar very quickly. But limiting the volume of bread, I'm an open face sandwich guy when I do eat it. So one slice of bread, more veggies and other good stuff on there with the meat. 
you know, by monitoring your blood sugars would be a great idea if you're diabetic or even if you're not a diabetic, use a continuous glucose monitor or intermittently check your blood through a glucometer so you can get a good sense of, you know, what types of foods spike your individual response because we're all different there. Our, our microbiomes dictate to some extent, plus our hormonal function, how well we respond to a food with a sugar spike. So you have to know what your individual responses are. Um, for me, number four, there's other dietary factors that are important other than disrupted glucose control. And for me, that's making sure you have a lot of nutrient quality. So you have a lot of micronutrients in there in the foods and polyphenols. So you want a whole plant-based food uh, situa situation where 90% of your food should be plant-based, multicolored fruits and vegetables. This is foundational because these food sources have antioxidants and, and polyphenols and chemicals in them that reduce the inflammatory burden of the human frame. And oh, by the way, they also happen to have a lot of fiber, which drives microbiome health, right? We're going to get to that in a second. But to me, you really want to just focus heavily on high quality whole foods while avoiding highly processed, chemical laden, trans fat, oxidized fat, sugar fat, you know, sugar loaded foods, right? Simple. All right. Number five, microbiome. So we know that the lungs and the GI tract have microbiomes and when they're well kept, fed well, not loaded with chemicals and exposed to poor quality foods, they have a normal biotic makeup. Their rainforest is diverse and beautiful. When we dysregulate them through antibiotic exposure, poor food intake, uh, chemical inhalation, chemical ingestion, all of a sudden the bacteria can become more what we call dysbiotic or not rainforest-like, more like a desert with a few trees, like, you know, think of Joshua Desert, Joshua Tree Desert. You know, that's not healthy, and right? That, that will alter the way our intestinal flora make short-chain fatty acids, which are really important to us, make uh, chemical uh, releases of lipopolysaccharide from bacterial cell wall debris, and, and so much more. But the end result of this is that, you know, it drives inflammation, right? So we want to feed these bacteria and viruses in our system, and the way we do that is through healthy food through avoidance of chemical ingestion, through avoidance of antibiotics and antacids and all of these things that are temporarily useful if you have a major infection, but long-term very bad. So you want to avoid having excessive antibiotic use. I really worry about this in children because I see kids 10 years old on their 14th antibiotic. It's a recipe for disaster as they age. So for me, you know, the, 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 we just need to focus on fiber right? Focus on helping to increase fiber so the gut bugs grow and proliferate into different species uh, of volume. And they produce propionate and butyrate and these different short-chain fatty acids that feed our intestinal lining and feed us and make us stronger and, and shift us towards a Th1 polarity, which then helps us kill viruses faster. So number six is exercise. Everybody knows I've talked about this forever. Exercise is critical. But remember, too little and too much of anything is the problem. So overtraining can cause inflammation just as much as sitting on the couch all day long causes inflammation. So for me, it's a sweet spot of 30 to 60 minutes a day, take rest days here and there, but move, 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 move. I have taken it as a, just a, a way of living now. I walk to the hospital from my office. I walk the stairs. I walk everywhere. I avoid elevators. I avoid escalators. You know, it's just, to me, I want to live as long as I can. And these are ways I know that I can mitigate risk. Movement uses blood sugar, which decreases blood sugar, 
which helps with insulin resistance. I mean, all of the above. I mean, there's a million ways that exercise help, but it also has massive anti-inflammatory effects on the immune cells. So you want to decrease inflammation, move, 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 right? And so for me, um, we know that that skeletal muscle will help us by using up sugar, reducing inflammation and all of that. But overtraining can actually become problematical because it releases excess IL-6, which actually drives inflammation. So you want to have a push-pull in all of this. So if you do train a lot, make sure you're supporting your system with high-quality foods and micronutrients, which gets me to number seven. You want to support your body with lots of good quality micronutrients and microminerals, right? So taking a good quality uh, uh, assessment of what your intake is, maybe get some blood levels of zinc, copper, vitamin D, and iron to see how you are doing with your diet. Do you need some supplementation? Meet with your doctor, start to look at these things. I, I know in children, when we check kids who are repeatedly ill and they have low zinc and low vitamin D and low iron, and we put them on a better diet and replace those nutrients, they stop getting sick. It's not rocket science. It's a machine. Your, your metabolism system needs micronutrients for, for good function. I mean, you need B vitamins to, to break down proteins and, and fats and sugars. So if you don't have enough Bs, you are inefficient in this process and you may make more uh, reactive oxygen species that's dysfunctional. So looking into this stuff is very important. Dr. Yannick's paper, uh, which was published in 2020, Integrative Medicine, has a nice, nice discussion on this stuff and he has a list of supplements that are useful. Um, the, the citations for this piece are available in the written version of this in the Salisbury Pediatric Newsletter. So if you want to find out the citations for all of this information, you're welcome to go there. Um, but for me, you know, this is the key. This is the crux of, of, of avoidance of disease, whether it's SARS-2, COVID, or the next virus down the line or the next bacteria. How do we support the system? You know, and for me, it's, it, it is this simple. Eat well, mostly plants you know, 90% plant-based foods. When you eat meats and fish, high quality, not farm-raised with garbage, corn, and, and what animals never ate, four-stomach four stomach cows ate grass, 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 not corn. You know, so really looking into the foods we eat, you know, supplementing with nutrients as needed, making sure you're getting adequate sleep, avoiding toxins in all their forms, supplementing your system with the correct minerals, growing your microbiome through healthy fiber-based foods and, and avoiding antibiotics and toxins. And, you know, just really looking at your system, get rid of the sugars, really feed yourself, right? And if you want a deeper dive and you haven't listened to it, I highly encourage you to listen to Dr. Rick Johnson's podcast, the follow-up uh, one I did called Putting It All Together, number three, on his work. And then, um, you know, going back and looking at the, the podcast with Ken Cook and the Environmental Working Group and where toxins are hidden and where they're, where they're affecting us. I think that was another really important podcast in this space. So, you know, for me, this was a long one, um, but for me, it was overdue. SARS-2 has been with us for a long time. And I know it's been a written form for a while for everyone to read, but it needed to be in an audio form because it's very complex. And this may need to be listened to once or twice or even three times to really synthesize the information. Because I, I can't think of anything more critical right now for our human health than understanding what this is and what we need to be doing from a upstream lifestyle risk perspective to reduce inflammation so that no matter what comes at us, we're ready. We're set to tackle it. Whether it's a child, an adult, an adolescent, we all need to be looking at this for a feed-forward effect of human health. So with that, I'm going to end. Uh, I hope 
as always, that you enjoyed the podcast and the length of it. I know this time and the depth of it and complexity of it was difficult. But to me, it's just too important not to go there. So I went there. And again, hope you guys have a great day. And as always, I appreciate you. Hug those kids. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue and does not constitute the formation of the provider-patient relationship.